God, we ask this morning that as we uh, come to this uh, story in John chapter 8, where it is too familiar to us, would you open our eyes to to see what you have for us today? Uh, If we've never seen it before or heard it before, uh, I pray that you would uh, cause the truth of it to, to find its way into our hearts. I, I pray that actually for all of us, that the truth of this story would find its way into our hearts and, and change us forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before uh, we read through this story, uh, I need to point out that this passage um, is surrounded uh, by dispute <laughs> um, regarding its origin and its location here in John's gospel. Uh, I will say this, there is almost complete agreement among Bible scholars that these verses were not written by John. Uh, it doesn't really fit his style. Uh, so there's, there's some question there. Uh, some think it may have been written by Luke. In some ways, it fits his style. Uh, in some early manuscripts, it actually is found in Luke's gospel, which is interesting. Or it may have been added uh, in John's gospel after John had, had completed it. We're not sure. But here's the thing that I want you to know. There is also almost complete agreement that this is a firsthand eyewitness account of an authentic Jesus event. Uh, Most Bible scholars and preachers choose to treat this text as something that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to preserve in the canon of Scripture. And for that reason, uh, I'm going to preach from it this morning. Uh, I think it's reliable. I I think it it fits uh, who we know Jesus to be. Uh, There's other things, other places, other stories, other accounts that, that just line up with this. So I think we're on solid ground. So for that reason, I'm not going to skip over it. We're going to see what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us through this conversation. So uh, let's, let's dive in here. Uh, the story begins with the writer setting the scene for this conversation uh, Again, we're in John chapter 8, which is on page 860 of the Bibles that the ushers just handed out. And the story begins really in verse 2. Uh, you, you could say that it ends with the last verse of, of chapter 7, but uh, for our purposes uh, this morning, it uh, really begins in chapter 2, which says, Early in the morning, Jesus came to the temple courts again. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The experts in the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they made her stand in the center and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? So Jesus is in the temple courts and he's teaching a crowd of people. We know from other gospel writers that this was 
something Jesus did regularly, teaching in the temple, and then going to the other side of the, the Temple Mount, the, the Mount of Olives, uh, to spend the night in or, or near Bethany. And while Jesus is, is teaching this crowd, probably uh, talking to them about what the kingdom of God is like, because he does that a lot, right? While he's doing that, the scribes, they're the experts in the law, and the Pharisees drag a woman into the center of this religious complex and the center of this crowd to shame her. According to them, she was caught in the very act of adultery. We don't know, but perhaps she only had a bedsheet wrapped around her. Her her worst nightmare is being played out in front of this religious community. You've probably seen this uh, before. You probably know this. But I, I, I think shaming people is one of the ugliest characteristics of religious communities. And so many religious communities seem to special uh, specialize in it. Why? Well, I, I think some people shame others because they think that maybe they'll look more spiritual if they put somebody else down. It's a, it's a common thing that, that humans do, right? Others, maybe with good intentions, I guess, seem to think that, that shaming a person who has sinned will somehow make that person more likely to be truly repentant, right? Truly sorry for what they've done. But it actually doesn't work that way. Uh, when you shame a person, they begin to believe that they are their sin. They don't make a distinction anymore between this thing they did and who they are. And so they, be, they, they come to a place where they believe it. That's just who I am. And so they stay in their sin, believing that they have no choice. And this is maybe a good place to point out a very important distinction, I think, between shame and guilt. The Holy Spirit, we know from the Bible, uh, makes us aware of our guilt regarding our sin. It's, it's one of the things that he does in our lives. Okay, so making us aware of our guilt is something that comes from God. Shaming comes from Satan. Always. Uh, don't mistake the two. Uh, if you're feeling shamed by someone, you need to know that that is coming from the enemy. That, that feeling of shame is not coming from God. That's not what he wants. That's coming from Satan. And if you're shaming someone, I'll just say this. You're on the wrong team. Okay? You're not on team Jesus there. So, so back to the story. The religious leaders bring this woman to the, the center of the crowd to point out to Jesus that the law requires this woman to be stoned, to put to death. And the law that they are citing is found in Leviticus 20 and then uh, also in Deuteronomy 22. And it clearly states that persons caught in the act of adultery were to be stoned 
to death. It was capital punishment, which sounds really harsh to our modern ears, I think. Uh, If we... (laughs) I was thinking of this this week. If we practiced capital punishment for all adultery in our town, uh, we wouldn't be needing to put up new apartments. Our population uh, numbers would, would plummet, right? But we don't do that um, for good reason, right? Tim Keller points out that while the Mosaic Law was severe in its punishment, it was extremely generous in what it required for evidence. The crime had to be witnessed by two or more people. So in this case, it wasn't enough for them to just be seen coming out of the same house together, wasn't even enough for them to be seen in the same bed together. The act had to be witnessed, which is creepy, right? The Mosaic Law made it pretty hard to charge and convict someone of this crime. I mean, in our legal system, for a crime, to be convicted of a crime, you just have to convince a jury that, yeah, that probably happened. That's reasonable, right? Beyond a reasonable doubt, right? But, but here, uh, there, there really has to be strong, strong evidence. And so for that reason, uh, it was very rare for someone to be caught in the act and convicted uh, of this uh, crime against the Mosaic Law. So these religious leaders who have claimed to witness this sexual encounter, want to know what Jesus thinks. What should we do? And then verse 6 helps us see the motivation behind uh, their accusations. We're told they were asking this in an attempt to trap Jesus so they could bring charges against him. And this statement, I think, brings us to a a whole new level of ugly in this story. As the woman they are accusing stands there, wrapped in whatever she was able to grab before they dragged her into the temple courts, we learn that this isn't really about her at all. In fact, they don't care one bit about her. They're no better than the the man that was using her for for pleasure. She is a means to an end. You feel the shame building here? We're told they they meant to trap Jesus. What is this trap uh, that they are setting? Well, in the minds of the the scribes and Pharisees, it's, it's it's a trap that has several uh, fail-safe features in it, okay? So first, they've heard Jesus talking about love and grace and compassion, and, and crowds of people are drawn to this. Crowds of people are following because he describes a kingdom where the least and the last are first. He describes a kingdom where the humble will be exalted, where the poor will be rich. And you can almost hear these religious leaders saying to themselves, we'll just see how well his message of love and grace plays out here. We got him, right? So on one hand, they're pitting Jesus against his own 
message. But they're also pitting Jesus against the law of Moses. He's a Jewish rabbi, right? And if he renounces the law, if he says, I say, let her go. Well, now he's in big trouble. Uh, they, they could string him up for, for opposing God's law, right? So they're, they're pitting Jesus against his own teaching. They're pitting Jesus against the, uh, the law of Moses. And thirdly, they're pitting Jesus against Rome, Roman law, because the Romans had taken away uh, the right to uh, exercise capital punishment. They had taken that away from the Jews. So if Jesus says, I say stoner, well, now he's opposing the, the Roman law and, and stirring up dissent against Rome. Be put in jail for that. So in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees, they got him, right? There's no way for Jesus to slip out of this trap. Another way to say it maybe is this. Jesus either has to trample on the woman and uphold the law, or he has to trample on the law and show compassion for the woman. Jesus has to choose between being moral and trampling on people, or he can be compassionate and trample on morality. You see the trap. There's some problems with their trap. Here's, here's just a few. Uh, I, I already mentioned that the laws of evidence required that you actually had to see this crime being committed, which they claim to have witnessed. She was caught in the act, they say. But one of the problems with their trap is that the law expected that if a per- person witnessed another about to commit a sin, compassion and their, and their own righteousness required them to speak up, to warn the person, don't do this, it's wrong. Don't do it, please, don't do it. There's no evidence of that in this story. These guys apparently just watched, neglecting their moral responsibility to give guidance to the woman. Perhaps because they were even part of a plot to set her up. To, to catch her so that they could use her. Here's another problem with their trap. The law required that both the man and the woman be killed. Has anyone noticed this yet? The women in, in the group this morning probably all have. Where's the dude? Where's the man? Huge injustice. Huge injustice that, that still happens today, by the way. Men are, are, are given a pass all the time because boys will be boys, right? Or the woman was asking for it by her behavior or her dress or something. Still happens today. So back to this story, these scribes and Pharisees either saw the act and only brought the woman, which is partiality, um, uh, a judge who shows partiality is also deserving of stoning. Serious, serious offense. Um, So either they are showing partiality or they didn't really see the act. And they're 
guilty of bearing false witness against this woman, a crime that is also punishable by death, by stoning. These guys haven't really thought this out that carefully, right? Last part of verse 6 sort of increases the tension for us. Excuse me. It increases the tension for us because instead of citing all of the problems uh, with their case, what does Jesus do? He bends down and writes in the dirt. Now, there are dozens. I mean, really, there are dozens of theories about what Jesus wrote in the dirt. I'm sure you've heard some of those, at least. One theory is that he wrote out the sins of the scribes and Pharisees who had brought this woman. Uh, Another theory is that he wrote out what the law actually said, showing them that he knew it better than they did. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that he wrote the passage from Isaiah that Lucas read from earlier, a passage that says that they, the religious leaders of Israel, are the true adulteresses, pot calling the kettle black, I guess we could say. One Bible teacher thinks that Jesus may have written out Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, in fact, seven, that are an abomination to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who sows rumors among brothers. Well, this could cover so many of the things that they are likely doing. But the fact is, we don't know what Jesus wrote, and whatever he wrote in the dirt doesn't really seem to have much of an impact on these guys, because verse 7 tells us that they persisted in questioning Jesus. They kept pressing him for an answer. And then finally, Jesus stands up and says, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he bent down and wrote on the ground again. This response from Jesus um, has been twisted, uh, usually not by preachers, just by common folk who who know of this story. But it's been twisted by some to mean that none of us are perfect, so we can't bring any charge against anyone else. You ever heard something like that? Who am I to judge? I'm not perfect, right? That's not really what is going on here. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because that would, if you carry that to its end, that would, that would be ridiculous, right? We couldn't put murderers in prison because none of us are perfect, right? It, it's a ridiculous argument to, to bring out of this text. What Jesus is doing, actually, is, is citing the same law that the Pharisees were. Because, see, the the Mosaic law required that the witness of the crime also had to be the executioner. 
He had to throw the first stone. Okay? But for you to be qualified to do that, you could not be guilty of the same sin you were charging someone else with. So what Jesus is really saying here, I think, is, okay, go ahead and stone her. But let's make sure we do this by the book. Okay? You guys know the law. Um, Who's qualified to get this execution going? Who's going to start? Some of you have seen the, the old movie, Greatest Story Ever Told. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a scene of this story in, the, in that movie, and, and Jesus just picks up a rock, and, and he just puts it in front of each one of these guys. You? How about you? What? Go, you? The trap that these guys have set is beginning to fall apart. They're obviously disqualified at some level. Either this is a false charge, um, which I don't think it is, or they've shown partiality because they didn't bring the, the man, or they're guilty of the same crime. Tim Keller says that Jesus is basically saying... I don't deny the law, but by the law, I deny you the right to bring this case against her. Jesus is not doing away with the law here. He's actually upholding the law. And then for the second time in the story, Jesus bends down to doodle in the dirt. And again, we don't know what he wrote. Maybe this time, it's just to give these guys time to think about it. The writer tells us in verse 9 that one by one they began to drift away, starting with the older ones. Hmm. Maybe they've just been at this longer. (laughs) Well, it seems that Jesus' statement not only disperses the religious leaders, but it also disperses the crowd. That was there because verse 9 also says that it was just Jesus and the woman left standing there, which brings us to this very, very brief but very powerful conversation between Jesus and the woman. Verse 10 Jesus stood up, he had been writing in the dirt, stood up straight and said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is the first time in this whole story that we hear anyone speaking to the woman. Up to now, her accusers are just talking about her. But Jesus treats her like a human. Jesus asks her a question that that requires her to look up. I imagine that this is the first time she's looked up since she was dragged in here. In her shame, she doesn't want she doesn't want to see any of her accusers. She doesn't want to see the crowd they've put her in the middle of. 
And who can blame her? Not me. When I've been caught in, in some sin that I'd rather no one know about, the shame's awful. I wouldn't want to look up either. But there's something in Jesus' tone, maybe, something in his words that gives her the courage to look up. And when she does, she sees that both her accusers and the crowd are gone. And then to Jesus' question, did no one condemn you? She answers in verse 11, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Wow, this is so powerful, you guys. You know, I think when we read this story, um, we tend to think Jesus only has two options. A, you're guilty, and so I condemn you. Or B, you're not guilty, so I don't condemn you. But, but when we read it this way, and, and when we think this way, we're, we're sort of putting Jesus in the same trap that the Pharisees were trying to put him in. We, we, we say to Jesus, you can either be moral or combat, compassionate. You can be one or the other, but you can't be both. And that still happens today. But Jesus shows us a different way, a better way. The gospel way, I think. Jesus says, in effect to the woman, you're guilty and I don't condemn you. I don't think there's any question about her guilt in this story. So how can Jesus say this? How can Jesus say you're guilty but I don't condemn you? Is he just turning a blind eye to sin? Is he he saying to her what I've heard from people? You're just loving them into hell. Is that what's going on here? No. What's Jesus doing? I think he's looking ahead just a few months to when he will give his life to pay for the sins of every person, including this woman. And he's saying to her, I don't condemn you because I'm going to take your condemnation on myself. That's how we're going to fix this. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans 8. That there's now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. We are guilty and not condemned. Both. Both. And the bottom line is this is what it means to be a Christian. Guilty but not condemned because Jesus paid the price for us. And faced with that truth, the only thing that makes sense then is what Jesus says to the woman, what he asks her to do, go and leave your life of sin. Did she? Hmm. 
I think she did. Most translations have her calling Jesus Lord. It's possible that she's just using uh, a term that, that is respectful, sort of like sir. Okay? I think there's another clue uh, to what happens to this woman, and it's given to us in the description uh, in verse 9. Who was left at the scene? Just Jesus and the woman. Augustine said only two were left. The woman in her shame and compassion incarnate. Ah. Let me ask you, if only the two of them were there, how is it that we know about the ending of this story? How do we know what happened after the religious leaders in the crowd left? I'll tell you. She told the story. She told the story. Like like the Samaritan woman at the well, she realized that she was looking into the eyes of compassion incarnate, the Messiah himself, and it forever changed her. And so she left her life of sin to follow the one who took her condemnation on himself and she told everyone everywhere she went. That's how we know. Wow. So what do we do with this story? What do we learn from this conversation? I was thinking it might be helpful for us to look at the three main characters in this story and and see what we learn from each of them. So so first of all, let's look at those who accuse this woman. Where do we see ourselves in in their story? And the sad truth is I, I think we all have a Pharisee lurking in the dark places of our hearts. We're, we're, we're very quick to pick up stones. In fact, sometimes I think we carry them around just looking for an opportunity, right? And this story shows us that the Pharisee inside of us is not qualified to do it. You might be saying, I have never picked up a rock to throw at someone. I mean, not since I was a little kid anyway, right? But I think sometimes um, we might use this. We might use our Bible as a stone to throw at people. We sometimes use it as a rule book to keep people in line, missing the point of what the whole Bible teaches. The religious leaders were taking their holy book and doing that, and I wonder if maybe sometimes we do that. And we might be kidding ourselves, thinking that we're being more spiritual when we're really just being mean. 
The other thing about the Pharisees here is that uh, we can be quick to condemn others without really examining ourselves, which Jesus speaks strongly against, not only in this story, but throughout the Gospels. Well, what about the woman? What do we learn from her? Where do we find ourselves in her story? You know, if there's one thing out of this story that I'm confident of, we are all this woman, every one of us. We have all lived a life of sin. The Bible is is crystal clear on that. We have all sinned. The only human who has ever lived that that led, led a sinless life is Jesus. And I'm guessing that most of us, maybe all of us, have, have felt shamed by others because of our mistakes, because of our sin. But here's something interesting in, in, the, in this story. At the end of the story, all of the accusers are gone. The crowd's gone. At the end of the day, it's just her and Jesus. And that's true for us. At the end of the day, it's me and Jesus. It's you and Jesus. And Jesus doesn't condemn you because he's taken that condemnation on himself. Again, there's a big difference between guilt and shame. God doesn't shame people. Something else that, that I think we can learn from this woman, we don't know it for for certain, but if she's anything like everyone else I know of who's been trapped in some sin, she's probably told herself again and again and again that this is the last time. I won't ever do this again. And without Jesus, she was powerless to do that. It's true of all of us. But if it's true that she left her life of sin to follow Jesus, then there's great hope here for you and for me that we can do that too. That the power of God in a person's life to be conformed to the image of Jesus is real. And I know some of your stories well enough to know that this has been true for you. You've, you've left this certain area of sin never to return again. It's wonderful. So I think that's where we see ourselves in this woman's story. But lastly, where do we find ourselves when we look at Jesus in this story? And, and too often, I think we avoid that question because we say, well, you know, I mean, he's Jesus, right? Of course, he's going to have the right answer. But I, I think it's a cop-out, actually, because I think the way Jesus behaves is the way that he expects us to behave. So what do we see here? First thing I see is that Jesus leads with compassion, not condemnation. In fact, it's probably his compassion uh, that that was a part of why the Pharisees uh, thought they could trap him in the first place. They, They thought he couldn't show compassion and keep the law. They were wrong. Here's another thing I see. Jesus doesn't excuse the woman's sin. He tells her to stop sinning. But the sequence matters. What do I mean? 
First, he tells her about forgiveness. First, he tells her, I don't condemn you. And then he tells her to stop sinning. He told Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 17, that he didn't come to condemn the world, he came to save it. And if anyone has a right to condemn, it's Jesus. So why? Why, if Jesus won't do that, do we think we need to step in and do that for him? It's not our job. I think what Jesus says to the woman is at the heart of the gospel. And it answers that dilemma of how we can uphold the law, uphold holiness, and still be compassionate. I don't condemn you, but go now and leave your life of sin. You know, one of the, one of the things that drew me to accept the call to come and serve as your pastor four years ago, I think... It was on this Sunday four years ago, if, if I'm remembering right. Uh, but a big part of what I was drawn to was the name of our church, Grace. I absolutely love that that handful of believers that formed this church in 19. 39 decided on that name. They could have chosen a lot of names and those names would have been fine. But they said, no, we're going to be called Grace Baptist Church. And I have said over and over again, I think, that my dream for us is to to live up to that name. And some days I get these beautiful, glorious glimpses of it. Ah, it's so good. And other days I realize we have a really long way to go. I have a really long way to go. We all have a long way to go. Most religions get this wrong. A lot of Christians get this wrong. Uh, Some of them say, go now and leave your life of sin, emphasizing sin and evil so much that people never... They never stick around long enough to hear, I don't condemn you. Or they say, go and leave your life of sin and then I won't condemn you. You go get your your life cleaned up and, and then there's a place for you here. And if we don't say that outright, I know that there are so many people that feel that, right? I can't go there. My life's a mess. So... I'll work on getting my life cleaned up. And when I get it all sorted out, then I'll go to church. Never happens, right? Others emphasize grace and, and acceptance. That, that seems, it seems to say maybe that sin doesn't really matter. And they mistake God's grace and his forgiveness as, as a license for sin. Sort of like the Apostle Paul's tongue-in-cheek Question, should I sin even more so I can experience more grace? No, he says, may it never be. Don't do that. So that's where so many live in those, in those first two options. But I think there's a third option. My friends, it's what I dream of for grace because I think we can be this third kind of church, a gospel 
centered church where everyone is welcome here, regardless of what their particular sin struggle is. Whether that's a sexual sin, like in the case of the woman in this story, or whether it's a sin of of gossip, or or wrongly accusing someone, or, or greed, or arrogance, or lacking mercy, whatever the sin is that that we are somehow excusing in our lives. I want to say to all of the sinners in our town, welcome. Pull up a chair. You are among friends. But I also want this to be a place where all of us, every single one of us, will be challenged to leave that life of sin, that life of of emptiness and be transformed into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. God loves every one of us just the way we are and he loves you too much to let you stay that way. We're all in this process of being conformed into the image of Jesus. And as we do that, I believe... Watch out now. As we do that, I believe that if we can truly live up to our name, if we can truly lead with compassion instead of condemnation, we are going to attract more and more people who are tired of being shamed. We're going to attract more people who long to hear the good news of a Savior who doesn't condemn them because he's taken their condemnation on himself. And he will empower them to live, to leave their life of sin and live the abundant life that he offers. That's what I dream of. And I I wonder if Anyone else would like to be a part of that? Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to rid ourselves of the judging, shaming Pharisee that lives in our hearts. Help us all to receive the grace that this woman received from you. And then to leave whatever sin it is that we're holding on to. And help us, Jesus, to learn from you how to lead with compassion. And at the same time, invite people to leave their life of sin and discover the abundant life you offer. Lord, get, get this down inside us. Change us. Conform us into the image of Christ, we pray. Amen.